Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 142, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, more on how the coronavirus is impacting schools and some tips on how administrators can observe classrooms without being disruptive. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, Catlin Tucker joins us with some ideas on how you can wade into the world of blended learning. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by the principal that's washing her hands like she's on her way to church, but still has a stamp on her hand from the club Saturday night. Christina Pollard, how are you doing? I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> you ever done that where you had the stamp and you're like, I don't want anyone to church to see you. Why I was are you calling out my 20s? <laughs> right. I know that it is more of a 20s, 20s thing. Um, how are things going for you? Things are going really good. It's funny that you say that because we we altered our program um, Sunday at church. Normally after announcements and we welcome um, first time visitors, it's like one of the best parts of our service is to greet each other. And we take mm-hmm. a moment to hug and shake hands and, and just, we did not. Look, okay. And my so. pastor addressed, you know, hand washing and not, you know, uh, picking up false information, like really, you know, paying attention to what accurate information is being provided and how to protect yourself. That's good. All right. So yeah, we're, we're basically going to move into the teacher's lounge right now because we were about to talk about coronavirus anyhow. And, and speaking of church, I'll, I'll lead with this. Uh, today's March 9th because uh, I feel like we need to, to put the date that we're recording this, even though this is going to air next week. But um, right now there's a total of 113,000 uh, confirmed cases uh, of coronavirus. That's around the world. Worldwide. Um, total recovered, 62,000. Um, so there is some good news there. Mm-hmm. But um, in the United States, it looks like we're over 600, about 607 cases right now. Wow. You were talking about church. Um, today, they announced there was a church in Washington, D.C., you may have not even heard this yet, where the pastor has just been diagnosed with coronavirus, and he actually gave communion yesterday, and there were 500 people in the church. And oh so they're goodness. now asking all those folks to get tested, would not just get tested, but at least, you know, isolate yourself, uh, isolate. Yeah. Um, but they need to report that they were there. Right. Maybe they're going to have some um, small sales, be able to go out and test them at their home, right. um, provide them with whatever medication or support is available. But that is really, really scary. And I guess my husband and I, we were talking about, I said, you know, service is different today. We're getting out earlier. Something's missing. And we talked about how, um, you know, our pastor was being very proactive about about that. And even after the service was o- over, he still stood at the front as he does every Sunday to greet, um, you know, different parishioners that want to speak with him. Um, but I did notice more people just greeting him and talking to him and less touching. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's probably the right thing to do. I mean, we don't want to panic. And I think that's everyone's kind of getting on that same page of like trying to balance panic, 
We don't want to go there, but be precautious and well, be smart. I've, and I've been paying attention a bit more myself, even like today. Um, one of the things you have to recognize is that young children constantly have their hands in their mouths. Mm-hmm. And so even today, I was reminding my teachers to please transition on campus and keep hand sanitizer with you. Remind the children to wash their hands in the bathroom. Try to, you know, you know, ask them when they're coming out, did you wash your hands? In the lunchroom, a lot of times their hands are lingering around their mouths and, you know, you have to remind them, um, let's eat with our forks. Right. And just trying to be extra precautious at this point because while we're worried about the coronavirus, the flu is still in effect. And we had a number of children out today with fevers and being sick and right. you start worrying. Yeah. And, you know, if anything, if there's any silver lining, the, the thought of coronavirus may make us, you know, since we're washing our hands more, it might help us prevent getting the flu, like you're mm-hmm. saying. And so there may there may be a little bit of a benefit there. Um, you know, districts are taking this seriously. It seems like they're monitoring this. Um, the Elk Grove Unified uh, School District, which is in Northern California, and it's one of the largest in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually is going to close school for a week. It's, wow. Um, looks like it's up there around the Sacramento area. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have, I have the numbers on the amount of schools. It looks like it's 67 schools and 64,000 students, but they're That's not, huge. they're not just closing school for a week and in, in doing learning. So it's not that the best case study, what they're doing is they move spring break up a week. And, Smart. You know, it was pretty clever. Yeah. In that regard to say, Are they all disinfecting right, the buildings? let's step back. I did not see any sign of that necessarily posted in here, um, but that would make complete sense to, to have the health department, you know, kind of run through there or some professionals run through. I think through. the biggest thing right now is pushing out as much information as possible um, to parents and making sure that they understand um, what the facts are, how they can help and how they can teach their children. And, you know, if you're listening, if your child has a fever now, this is just 101. They need to be fever-free for 24 hours before you send them to school. I had to return, right. you know, send a number of children back home this morning um, before we even started our first block. I pray that we won't be airing this next week and things have exponentially got worse. You know, um, hopefully this all still is kind of in line. I've, I've been looking for resources um, that maybe, you know, a school district that isn't even thinking about this yet, if that's a thing, or a teacher that, you know, hasn't really um, come up with a contingency plan. Even like, if a teacher has. That is really the superintendent's office responsibility. Right. And, and, you know, there may be some districts that aren't necessarily, you know, in action mode just yet. Well, there was um, the International School of Brussels, which apparently is a great school over in Belgium. Um, They are sharing their contingency plans like on their website. And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Oh, that's awesome. Because it it at least acts as like a template, right? Like what did they do? Maybe we can build off of that or scale back. Hey, we believe in education, big, bro, and steel. Do not reinvent the wheel. And our guest in this week's episode, Catelyn Tucker, um, she's we're, we're going to be talking about her new book that's out, but we're also, she kind of talks about and has some resources that she has in terms of um, if you have to do distance learning. Um, so check out that a little later on in this episode if you're interested in that. There is a um, more lighthearted story to come out of all this coronavirus dealing with schools, and that comes out of China. Um, so apparently all these kids are, are you know, home. Um, they don't have school. They haven't had it for weeks. And the government had this um, Alibaba-developed app called Ding Talk, and it was going to be used to kind of facilitate class remotely. And um, the kids apparently – I don't know if this is true or not in terms of causing the app to be removed from the store, but 
the the rumor went around that if an app drops below like one star in the app store, then it gets removed. So so they just campaigned to there was ridicule a, it. There was a campaign, and apparently tens of thousands of reviews flooded in, and Ding, Ding Talk's rating plummeted overnight. They're clever. From a 4.9 to a 1.4. And it got so bad that Ding Talk was like having to start its own campaign Quote, it says, begging for its life. This is kind of going on in China right now. So you've got to kind of... But that's hilarious, it, though. It's kind of funny. Part of you is like, no, no that's naughty. But another part's like, that's clever. It's but funny. they put their voices together. Right, exactly. Um, so uh, that one was a story that... Power kind of, of togetherness. Right. So um, hopefully we don't end up in the place where the whole entire country here in the United States is having to do distance learning, but it doesn't hurt to start having those conversations. I, I tell you what, whatever is best to keep children and the rest of us safe from the coronavirus we'll do what we have to do but just looking at it from you know the technology perspective there are many school districts not ready you know i do worry about that and there's only so much you can do and again i think we've kind of said like i think any district can handle being out a week maybe the much as three weeks Three weeks. Um, I remember and, we were out for three weeks after Hurricane Katrina. Exactly. And, and you can kind of make that time up here and there. But once you start pushing beyond that, there needs to be some sort of distance learning taking place. Um, so and then there's other things that I mean, school districts have to think about is just soap for the bathrooms. Like, are they going to be able to get you know that? And uh, obviously, hand sanitizer is already um, in short supply. And well, let's be realistic. Shouldn't those things already be in stock in your supply closets? Why are we panicking and running to the store and clearing the shelves? Though, when it comes to schools and hospitals and places like that, they mm-hmm. should already be fully stocked. Yeah, I just don't know if we've ever seen this type of demand, though. I, I'm, I'm curious to see, like, if we start to hear of shortages uh, in those regards, especially with the hand sanitizer. Well, manufacturers, first. hear us out. Right. Start reproducing quickly. Right. All right. So uh, what else do you know? What's going on in the uh, teacher's lounge in your world? Listen, you're, we're talking about how to prevent things. Let's talk about something that's being very proactive. Conducting classroom observations. Mm. I came across an article that really, really helped me think deeply about whether, um, as an administrator, I am being disruptive when I visit so classrooms. So I, I saw this, and I didn't know if you were going to be offended by this article or Absolutely not as an administrator. Not. So, so yeah, please go on. Well, there's, you know, I, I'm always going to look at both sides of the coin. Yes, you can be disruptive if you're doing some of these things. One, knocking on the door in a way that startles everyone. Right. Two, if you only visit classrooms twice a year to meet your classroom observation quota. And three, if you bring, um, you know, someone with you one of the two times that you visit throughout the school year, then that puts a shock not only on the students, but then now you've caused a teacher to get nervous, lose her spot, and you just wreck the entire classroom culture. But then there's the flip side, which I have to be proud to say is my style. I am in classrooms and on the sidewalk and just visible every day of the year that it, I, it is not a shock when I walk in a room and students have learned to not even acknowledge me. Now, it's a little bit difficult. I'm kind of a celebrity in kindergarten. You walk in there. <laughs> and they start screaming your name yeah, and you have to grade so much no. eighth grade they they you know they might wave a little bit yeah. or they might look annoyed like oh gosh wondering if i'm here to you know pull one of them yeah. for discipline but they're not shocked about my presence about joining in the discussion if there's a great discussion going on about giving pointers the teachers aren't nervous if a teacher is nervous it could be that it's their formal observation but probably also because they've had some weak um feedback and they've been struggling but let me tell you three things that you need to remember you ready? Mm-hmm. Ready. I'm ready. Relationships, now. relationships, 
relationships. Okay. With it, the teachers or the students? Both. Both. Okay. Your visibility, your openness to support, provide feedback and provide even more support. That's the only way you're going to build relationships with your teachers and your relationships with your students. Obviously, you've got to be visible in the cafeteria, in the hallways, in the morning before school, greet every child at the end of the day, send every child home with it, you know, have a great day. You hope you worked hard today. Did you learn? You know, that all of that's going to be important. And when you're visiting those classrooms, then it doesn't bother them because they trust you. Right. So I guess the whole takeaway from this is if you don't want to be disruptive during observation time is just be present all the time as much as you possibly can. So so it's not abnormal. Yeah. And don't bang on the door like the police is showing up. I mean, how do you how do you enter a room? Like, and do teachers know you're coming to observe or you just kind of? Yes and no. So sometimes you're coming to observe, but you're not bringing a computer or the software program with you that you, you know, upload your observations to just being you know, present three or four minutes, doing an eye check, making sure learning is occurring, and then keep going. It's just a way to inspect what you expect. But, you know, the only way you're going to have teachers to have a shared vision, um, to to believe in the goals that you set, and to be a part of the action steps is to have tight relationships. That mean being their friend, but it means having clear expectations. You're clearly communicating it. You're following up with what you said you'd do, and then you're there to help them be better. So I like this. You, you had this article, and it basically... I mean, I forget the exact title of the article, but it's like... Can administrators observe classrooms without being disrupted? Right. And so and rather than say, well, I don't do that, like you you used it as an opportunity to look in the mirror and see, like, am I doing this properly? You, you think it's good advice. Do you think there's administrators out there that are, are those people who just like you know, bang on the door and, yep. and do all those things. Yep. I mean, if you can, I recommend you take your keys with you, carry your keys around. And I'll give you a funny ex- example. The current school that I'm serving in, I probably have 75 keys on the ring. It's kind of impossible, you know. So I do a little light tap at the bottom of the window portal. We've already taught as a part of our crisis plan that the teacher has one student designated to be the, the door opener. However, they still give an eye to the teacher and they have an understanding before they open the door. They don't just jump up and open it. And that is because our classrooms open up, you know, to the elements to outside. We don't have hallways. Okay, gotcha. So those are just things that are in place. But you tap lightly, um, your regular visits, they, it doesn't bother you. And even if it's time to do a detailed 30, 45 minute classroom observation, you've had a, a pre-conference with that teacher, set the they tone, know you know, they yeah. know you're coming, they know what you're looking for. And then you're going to have a post conference to talk about it. Do you get a different reaction, I guess, when you say you, you have software that you can do observations with, it's maybe like on an iPad or whatever, or do you do you get a different feel when you pull that out? And or you walk into a classroom with it? I say no, because I mean, you're following the teacher growth rubric right down to the T, the teachers are very aware of it, they know what indicators you're looking for, they get it instantly. Um, once you upload it, But remember, I talked about those quick walkthroughs where I just carry a post-it note with me and I might leave a note that says great engagement or I might need to leave a note that says, let's talk about some other strategies for so and so and so and so. So um, all feedback should be good feedback and how you convey it. It should be in a positive manner. Well, today in the uh, Brown Idea, we're talking about blended learning. Are you ready for the Brown Idea? Bring it on. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a thought leader in the world of blended learning. Catlin Tucker has authored several books on the subject, and her newest book is called Balance with Blended Learning. Catlin, welcome back to Class Dismissed. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, we had you on a uh, a couple years ago. It was a great episode. And um, I actually do want to jump into uh, the book in just a second. But I did notice you posted a blog post over the weekend on a very current topic. <laughs> and, and I think that has to do with, um, you know, the coronavirus and, and the, the what ifs, like what if schools start to close? Um, what could teachers do in terms of communicating, I guess, with their students remotely? And, and you had some advice there, right? Yeah, I, you know, this conversation is really scary because teachers, a lot of teachers are not necessarily leveraging online tools and engaging students in dynamic learning outside of the classroom. So I wanted to create a resource where particularly for teachers who haven't had a lot of practice planning and a dynamic multi-part online lesson that it would support them. So should they be facing a week or a couple of weeks where they won't be seeing their kids face to face, they're one, not sending them home with huge packets of paper, but two, are really thinking about how do we keep these kids connected, engaging with each other, engaging with the content in a meaningful way when they're outside of school. Yeah. And I think, you know, the the whole idea of having, you know, to work with kids remotely, maybe for a few days, that doesn't seem too daunting. But if it were to expand into several weeks or months, and and the only time we've probably really ever seen this is maybe like a hurricane or something where maybe schools had to to do this distance type learning. Have you ever like had to be in that situation? I know you're in Northern California, you guys have dealt with fires over the past few years. Did you ever find yourself in that situation? Um, the fires to a degree, though, there was so much mayhem in the, in the sense that unlike the coronavirus where kids might be just at home, kind of almost like in a quarantine situation because they don't want everybody at school, the fires tended to throw everybody into upheaval here. And so there wasn't necessarily that access where you're just hanging out at home, waiting out, you know, the green light to go back to school. You had families who were displaced and it's a little bit more chaotic when you're dealing with a a catastrophic weather event or some kind of a fire. But um, my hope is that with the coronavirus, you you do have people who are just kind of at home waiting it out so that we're not spreading it. And they, they do have access to devices and the internet and they can get on and keep learning. And so that was really the goal for me is how do you give teachers a very simple framework, give them some ideas for tools they can use to engage kids should kids be at home for a length of time. Though I have coached, so I do virtual coaching with several schools in Africa, and their situation is much more precarious in in many countries where you have you know leadership changing hands and there's possibility that because of civil unrest, people won't be in school for months and months. And so I've definitely supported schools in different parts of the globe where they're facing real threats of, hey, our kids might not be able to come to school for several months. And so just kind of give us a quick overview. um, And I'll point everybody in the right direction if somebody wants to look specifically at that post. But I mean, you you offer videos and, and you have, as you call it, the five E's. Right. Right. Yeah. I use the five E instructional model. I figured it. It's. I really like it because it's very grounded in constructivism and student inquiry and places students at the center of learning, um, even though it might be happening virtually for the most part. And then, yeah, I broke down each of the E's with a little video and tried to highlight some of the tools that I thought were a nice complement to that particular stage in that instructional model. So hopefully, it'll give teachers. You know, there's a template in there. It's got some video instruction. Hopefully, it will give them the support they need to feel confident planning 
you know, a multi-day kind of dynamic online lesson. And if you never have to take it online, it would be a great lesson to think about using potentially as a self-paced experience for students in the classroom if you're trying to create time to give real-time feedback or do side-by-side assessments and you're trying to figure out, okay, what would it look like if I'm conferencing one-on-one with kids? What would the rest of class be doing? And this is potentially the kind of lesson they could be self-pacing through. It's a great resource. If somebody wants to check that out, you can go over to CatlinTucker.com. And of course, again, I'll have those links in the uh, show notes uh, directly to that spot. Now, um, as I mentioned at the top here, we um, are talking about your new book, Balance with Blended Learning. And um, as I kind of look through everything, I-, I see this overarching theme for for blended learning that comes from you. And it, it seems to be that, you know, one, it, it, it's a great experience for the students, but also equally, if not more importantly, it gives teachers some of their life back. Am I right about that? I think it definitely has the potential to do that. And, and so when you say that and potential, like, <laughs> how can that happen? Because I think that that's an appealing thing for teachers who are constantly bringing work home, right? Oh, absolutely. So I think for me, so I'm, I, I joke all the time that like, I really didn't have any business writing this book at this point in my life, just because I'm I was in the middle of my actual coursework for my doctoral program, and I was still doing a lot of coaching and training and speaking at events. And I was engaging with all these teachers who were having a slightly different experience with blended learning than I had had, where the blend they perceive blended learning as a lot more work. And I couldn't understand why that was. And then as I started to get into classrooms in my coaching capacity, I realized that teachers were still doing the lion's share of the work in classrooms, the way in which we have traditionally approached kind of the the workflows in education where teacher assigns an assignment, you have 150 kids do it, you collect those assignments, you process them, you input the data in the grade book, you pass it back. Those traditional workflows and, and still a lot of teacher talking and students listening it does put a lot of the burden on teachers. And so my experience with blended learning had been totally different where I felt more that I was partnering with students. I was sharing the responsibility with learning for them. I was using the models in really dynamic ways to try to create space in my classroom. So I wasn't at the front of the room. I was sitting side by side with kids and giving feedback as they worked or conferencing about the goals that they had set and where they were in progress toward accomplishing those goals or pulling them into a side-by-side assessment conversation where I was grading their work as they sat next to me. And I thought, gosh, I want teachers to have the experience I had, but I think it requires this whole mind shift around how we view our role in education as the teacher and how we view the student role in the classroom and what responsibilities do we each own and which ones do we share. And so the book was really born out of this desire to help teachers see how they can leverage these models and use technology strategically to create the time and space, yeah, to move some of that work that they've traditionally taken home into the classroom, be more thoughtful about what we grade and why we're grading it, um, and what role can students start to play in thinking about their learning, tracking their progress, reflecting on what's happening in this space. So that's why I wrote it. <laughs> well, and, and the way you answered that question originally, when you said it has the potential to kind of, you know, give you some of your life back, you must have known or, or seen experiences where maybe people bit off more than they can chew. I mean, do you have any guidance to kind of avoid um, those pitfalls of maybe trying to take this on too aggressively? 
Absolutely. So it's interesting in the in the first chapter of Balance with Blended Learning, I talk about grades and the way traditional grading practices refor- reinforce so much of kind of the status quo in education, the way we teach, where we spend our time and energy, and how I think it's actually really counterproductive for us, for students. And so I start with this conversation about rethinking what is driving our grading practices? Because I think if you're moving into this blended space, hopefully that means you're differentiating more more consistently. You're you're looking towards personalizing the learning experience for kids and you're starting to rethink your role as not this person who has all the information and orchestrates the entire lesson, but rather this kind of architect of learning experiences and this coach, a coach who sits next to kids and supports them with developing skills. But what I was seeing were absolutely teachers biting off more than they could chew, um, really struggling to let go of some of those traditional roles of, you know, kind of fountain of knowledge. And so even teachers who would have like a station rotation happening in their room, which is kind of a a pretty manageable model for teachers who are moving from more of a traditional approach to a blended approach, they were still using their entire teacher-led station to just talk and transfer information for to kids. And they weren't necessarily using that station to give feedback, to coach kids, to pull individuals and, and work with them one-on-one to, to provide the additional scaffolding and support that they needed. And so they're still like on all period and they're not necessarily feeling as effective as I would like them to. And they're not moving some of those, those assignments that they would traditionally have taken home and graded or given feedback and isolation. They weren't moving that into the classroom. And they were still primarily the person in the room doing the thinking about what what learning was happening in that space. Are there signs that a teacher can see while they're trying to roll this out where they go, all right, this is working? Like, should you be looking for certain feedback from your students? Is there any aha moments? Absolutely. Well, I would love for feedback to be a two-way street where not only are the teachers giving students feedback on their work as they're working and helping to support that work in progress, but I would love to see teachers constantly asking students for feedback about the lesson, the activities, the technology, all of those pieces so they can constantly be refining their practice. But in terms of really starting to kind of think about who is doing the thinking in this classroom, I encourage teachers to start building in that metacognitive skill building. So starting to think about the value of ending the week with kind of an end of the week exit ticket that's really just driving individual kids to think about their learning, identify a skill, a concept they learned. Think through, how did I learn this? What questions do I have? If if I was going to teach a peer, what kind of activity would I design to help somebody my age learn what I learned this week? And and really valuing kind of that that metacognitive practice in classrooms so that students can start to understand themselves as learners. If there's a teacher listening that's maybe a skeptic about the whole idea of blended learning because, <laughs> because of maybe their subject, maybe they say, well, it won't work in math or it won't work in history or it won't work in English. Like, where does it work best? Well, you, you know what you'll hear it most often is this won't work in AP classrooms because we're racing through material. And whenever I hear that this, you know, 
air quotes, won't work somewhere, I'm immediately thinking about, are we focused on racing through curriculum, that kind of like breadth of getting through stuff? Or do we want kids to actually understand what they're learning, be able to apply their learning to new and novel situations? Because if the goal is I have to get through it so they can memorize it so they can pass the test... I mean, I don't even know how to respond to that because I don't see the value personally in that experience. Because if you look at the research about what kids actually retain, what they remember information-wise, it is so <laughs> it is so small. And so really, I feel like what we should be doing is, yeah, of course, we're going to be covering content, but we need to be focusing on skill development. And when we talk about skill development, kids need practice. They need experiences, so that experiential learning. They need to engage with peers and that social learning for those skills to really be developed and refined because it's those skills they're going to carry with them long after they leave our class. They're probably not going to remember a lot of the, the information we covered, but it's those skills that they honed that are going to be particularly useful for them. And hopefully we're teaching them skills like research skills where they can continue learning long after they've left our classes. You've written several books on blended learning. You have Blended Learning in Action, Power Up, Blended Learning. Um, but this newest one is, again, Balance with Blended Learning. And that that term balance seems to really be where everything revolves for you. In fact, you, you've started your own podcast it's called The Balance, if anybody wants to check that out. What's the deal? Why balance and blended learning together? I'm really concerned about the loss of spectacular human beings from the teaching profession. We are seeing just kind of this flight from teaching, and I don't blame people. It's it is such an exhausting profession on like a lot of different levels, a mental level, an emotional level, um and so for me, I think if we don't start to really shine some light on how we can approach this job in a sustainable way, we are going to continue to lose exceptional people from this profession. And one of the things that's been challenging, I think, particularly folks who have been teaching a while, is that technology, both in and outside of the classroom, are radically changing our lives, the way we communicate, <clears throat> the way we access information, the way we share, the way we engage with each other. And so as teachers are trying to figure out how do I how do I teach with the technology so that kids can use it successfully after they leave this classroom? It's it's placed another strain on educators. And so my goal when I work with teachers is to try to help them figure out how to use different models that leverage technology and not technology all the time, because I don't want kids staring at a screen all day. That is not the objective for me. But how do we leverage technology to shift students to the center of learning, having them asking the questions, investigating topics, having conversations and making meaning together as a learning community? I Technology should open the door for all of those things. And the more we put students at the focus or at the center of learning, the less pressure we are to be at the center of the learning, the more we can be a support system for students guiding the learning. And so if you if you get the book and you start going through it, like what type of resources are in there for a teacher? I mean, is, is it broken down where you actually have like templates or, or what? Yeah. So I think one of my strengths, and I read several books on blended learning or a few books at the point before I wrote my first book. And 
I liked hearing the why. I, the research was interesting. The theory was interesting. But what I wanted as an educator was tangible resources. Like, what does this look like? How does I get? How do I get it done as an educator? And so, in this book, so for example, I do talk about the the value of forming a partnership with kids, and then I have a whole chapter on metacognitive skill building. And so, I have several different ways that teachers can approach that: strategies, resources, templates. Then I get into things like you know real time feedback and how you can use different models to create the space to give feedback. And then here are three different approaches to giving feedback. And here's how you can use technology if you're giving feedback on, you know, a document that's online to speed up that process. And here's a template for if you really want to give a more narrative kind of feedback approach. Um, I talk about the protocols I use for side-by-side assessment and how I make time to sit with individual kids to assess their work so they can hear why they're getting the scores they're getting on specific skills and get rid of all the kind of opacity that has kind of surrounded grading practices in the past. I talk about how to design rubrics so they can be a roadmap for kids and learning tools and assist in self-assessment. I talk about grade interviews and why it's important to give students agency when it comes to articulating what their grade should be and what the what the format that takes for my class has always been, and then tips for teachers who want to implement. So for me, it's about pinning all of this down into very practical strategies and resources that teachers can use that just makes it easier to kind of wrap their minds around it. And what's exciting is I'm starting to see teachers on Twitter posting pictures of their side-by-side assessment conversations and posting pictures of real-time feedback and saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe... I'm just starting this now. This is like such a game changer. And I just, I would love it to catch on like wildfire so that teachers realize like, it's not like we're not going to work outside of the classroom, but let's put our energy outside of the classroom into the aspects of this job that we find energizing, like lesson design. Let's not lug home massive amounts of paper that we're going to give feedback or grade in isolation and then hand it back and kids glance at the notes or the point value or the grade and then kind of like move on. Well, it's got to be rewarding to see teachers, you know, respond that way. So so congrats on that. Again, the book is Balance with Blended Learning. Um, this is Catlin Tucker talking to us. And uh, the you mentioned on Twitter, you not that you need a plug for me, you have like 50,000 followers on there. But <laughs> I don't know if you want to go ahead and tell us uh, your Twitter handle just in case somebody's not following. Yeah, it's at Catlin, C-A-T-L-I-N, not Caitlin, underscore Tucker. And I do try even with as many connections as I have on Twitter, I get a lot of questions, requests for resources, people asking me about things they're trying. So if you're looking for support in this space, definitely reach out. Um, I'm pretty available on Twitter. And uh, again, her uh, new podcast is called The Balance. And uh, best of luck with that. The reason the audio quality sounds like we're in the same room is because you must have some sort of studio set up there. So we, <laughs> we appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.